This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. How are you this morning? I am doing great. And how about yourself? I'm doing great. And, you know, it's such an honor. And really, I'm humbled by uh, being able to work with Debbie Bell. You know, if I, I could spend an hour talking about her many accomplishments, and I don't want to use the show's whole time for that. But I will say she literally wrote uh, the book on Mississippi family law that is used throughout uh, courts in, this, in the state and by lawyers in the state. She uh, created our clinical programs and served as associate dean of those uh, many programs now that have developed uh, since she started our, our poverty law clinic many years ago. And uh, just uh, has been awarded by the bar uh, and by multiple organizations. Uh, It's really just a pleasure to have Debbie on the show. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure to be here. Well, Debbie, you, know, you're, you're, you are the expert in family law, and we asked you to talk a little bit about uh, the children uh, part of it, because when a family divorces and there is no, there are no children, those are usually easier questions. But yeah, talk about how custody has changed. What was it like 50 years ago? Okay, so custody of all the areas in family law, I think, is one of the most dynamic right now. If you look back 50 years ago, there were almost no custody cases. So think about this. It was the 1970s before no-fault divorce was available. People just weren't getting divorced in the numbers that they are now. So you didn't have those custody cases making it to the court. Also, um, 50 years ago, there weren't many non-marital children. Now, over half the children in the state are born outside of marriage, and courts have to be involved in those cases as well. So we have gone from 50 years ago where custody was just insignificant in terms of the number of cases to just the sheer volume of cases now is stunning. So I track all the cases I have for the last 25 years in family law. Even 20 years ago, we might see four or five cases a year make it to the appellate courts. Now family law is the biggest civil area making it to the appellate courts. And out of those cases, custody cases are by far the most. So some of the things that have changed, in addition to just the volume of families litigating over custody, is 50 years ago, well, let me change that, 30 years ago, If a couple was divorcing and a man went to his lawyer and said, I really want custody of my children, the lawyer would say to him, unless your wife has done something terrible, you don't have a chance. Because custody was governed by something called the maternal preference rule, which said that there was a presumption that women were the best custodians of their children. So men really really didn't litigate custody very often. That changed in law in the mid-80s, and really, I think, by the mid to late 90s changed in fact. So now, men who have been equal caregivers with their wives really do have a chance at getting custody. So not only are there more families litigating custody, but there's more reason to go to court rather than to settle out of court if both parents want custody because men are, are now treated as equal if they've been equal caregivers. 
It's so interesting. Now, uh, I know, too, the one thing that uh, courts tend to do is joint custody. So what is, what is that really? How's That's that also been a big change. Uh, Forty years ago, I'm, let me think about this. I'd say even 20 years ago, uh, although joint physical custody was available as an option, judges were incredibly reluctant, I think, to award joint physical custody. Now we see judges awarding joint physical custody sometimes when the parents haven't even asked for it. And there are more and more judges who see that not only as an option, but actually as the ideal. And so I've, I've heard some judges say, you know, if, if, there's a, if there's a family in which both parents are good, fit parents, I'm going to award them close to equal time. There was actually an interesting study recently. Um, somebody, uh, a national organization, did a study of all the states in the country of the cases in which both parents are fit, neither one had a drug problem or an abuse mental health problem, and they looked at the parenting time that the non-custodial parents given. So if the mother gets custody, the father's gonna be the non-custodial parent. And in that study, Mississippi ranked 48th. So there were only two states where non-custodial parents, maybe the father, got less time um, the average time in Mississippi is 23%. And I think that study has really prompted some people to think about whether Mississippi should change the, the time that a non-custodial parent gets. In fact, there was a recent, um, I think it was a Court of Appeals decision, where almost half the judges either filed concurrences, concurrent uh, or dissenting opinions, saying that they thought when both parents were fit that there should be a presumption of joint physical custody really surprised me to see that. So I, I think that's another shift we're seeing. Not only are men more likely to be awarded sole custody, but the courts are more likely to award joint physical custody, recognizing the importance of both parents. So that, that's just been a, a very big change. The other big change that I've seen, in addition to the maternal preference rule, uh, joint custody, and then as I said, the sheer volume of cases, is third-party involvement. So um, 30 years ago, even third parties very rarely got custody. Um, our law has something called the natural parent presumption, which says that we presume that parents are the best custodians of children. So it's really hard for a third party, a grandparent, a sibling, uh, to get custody of children. And we're seeing that eroded and seeing more and more third parties awarded custody. I think there are now four different tests for awarding custody to third parties. It, it's so interesting. I mean, I, I also, you know, we, we talk about uh, physical custody, but there's, we, we did a moot court competition in Albany. Um, our team did really well. They, they were uh, finished eighth in the competition. I'm real proud of them. But one, the question great. was legal custody and residential custody, and the father didn't have the ability to have uh, joint physical custody of the child, but he had legal custody, uh, joint legal custody. How is that different? So um, in Mississippi and in all states, you, you can split custody between physical, which means who has the child the primary amount of the time, and legal custody. And legal custody is defined as the decision-making with regard to a child's health, education, welfare. And so one parent could have sole physical custody, and the parents could then share joint legal custody which means that they, I, I actually tell you what the statute says, that they share 
decision making with regard to the the um, joint legal custody means the parents or parties share the decision making rights, the responsibilities, and the authority relating to the health, education, and welfare of a child, and confer with one another. So. That now, I think, is the most common custody award that you see, is one parent will have sole physical custody and they will share joint legal custody, which is fine as long as they can cooperate. And then when they can't, then it becomes an issue. I mean, I, I think you're, the problem that your students worked on was something like that. It was. They actually had a uh, situation where the, the mother put the child back on medication that the father had objected to, and she didn't tell the father she put the child on medication. And apparently that really does happen frequently, whether it's about medication or about, you know, uh, religious beliefs or whatever. It seems like there, there are issues that happen fairly regularly. Right. So and, I, I mean, I think some of the issues that would come up would be what kind of religious training, where the child's going to go to church, what kind of extracurricular activities, how, how much um, in terms of extracurricular activities that the kids are going to do, where they're going to go to school. Uh, all of those are things that the parents might disagree about. Um, if that happens, ultimately, they, if they cannot agree, they're going to have to go back to court. Professors, we have a call waiting. We're going to go to Indianola, and Emory is on the line. Emory, thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I'm a disabled Social Security recipient, and I went through a divorce about 10 years ago. And now my uh, one of my dependents, turned 18 back in November, but he's still in high school. And he graduates in May. And Social Security going to stop in May. And so the state told me that I would have to pay child support until he's 21 now that the Social Security has stopped. Um. So th- that's a child support issue, and as just as a reminder to um, everybody who may call in, we can't give advice on your specific case, but I can give you some general information that might be helpful. So one of the things I, I think is a little bit confusing in Mississippi is that the age of majority in a lot of states for child support is 18, but in Mississippi, the age of majority for child support is 21. So in Mississippi, Social Security, if it does cut off at 18, which I understand it does, the, um, then the law says that that obligation to pay child support can continue until the child is 21 or they are emancipated. And since I don't want to, since we're talking more about custody, I don't want to go through a, a long thing about emancipation. But there, you need to know there are several ways in which a child can become emancipated before they're 21. Uh, one includes when they are out of high school and not going to school and working. Um, so you probably need to talk to a lawyer uh, when your child gets out of high school and see if any of those circumstances um, apply. But thank, thank you for calling and, and um, raising that issue. And, and custody and child support are very closely linked. All right. Thank you, Emory. We appreciate you. Now, wasn't Professor Bell just a guest on our show? Well, yes and no. I'm going to explain. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, and I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Professor Deborah Bell talked about divorce on In Legal Terms two weeks ago when I was out dealing with flooding. It was a rebroadcast of our podcast, Divorce in 2018. But this morning, we're talking talking about family law issues concerning children. We uh, are so glad to have uh, Professor Bell here with us to continue talking about uh, child custody and divorce. And, and Debbie, you mentioned third parties, and that, that seems to be a, now a big, a big part of custody. I mean, also, I would add, you know, now uh, the, you know, the maternal uh, presumption when we have same-sex marriages, there will be same-sex divorces involving custody. Right. So we got to really rethink how, how we do custody. But how do third parties get involved? So um, if you look at the statistics, I, I should have looked it up, but uh, there are so many third parties raising children. And when I say third parties, I mean somebody who is not the biological or adoptive parent. Uh, the, the numbers of grandparents raising their grandchildren has really skyrocketed over the last few decades. Um, and there are also step-parents who care for their stepchildren in the absence of a parent. I mean, we've really moved from what was the, the traditional nuclear family, a husband and wife and their biological children, to a nation of blended, multi-generational um, families that just look very different. And so third parties who are caring for children get attached to them. Uh, they develop a what really a parent-child bond. And so those third parties often are the best caregivers. And so the courts are really trying to balance between a parent's constitutional rights with regard to their children and the presumption that parents are the best custodians of their children with the reality sometimes that the real parent to a child has been somebody without a biological tie. And so over the last two decades, in an attempt to balance those concerns, courts have developed a number of different tests. So the, the old test, the traditional test, was if a third party wanted to get custody of a child, they had to prove that the parent had abandoned the child or deserted the child or was unfit. And that was a really high standard, hard to overcome. One of the exceptions that has been developed to that, and it's very important that people know about this, um, in Mississippi and, and some other states, is that if a parent 
gives up legal custody of their child to a third party, to a step-parent or to a grandparent, they lose that natural parent presumption. So that's one of the ways sometimes a parent will decide they're not able to take care of their child, and they will go into court and turn over legal custody. They will sign a document that the judge approves saying that the grandparent will have legal custody. After that, the grandparent and the parent are treated equally. Um, it's, people also sometimes will give a third-party guardianship, and it, uh, it's very important for parents to understand that when they sign one of those guardianships, they also lose the natural parent presumption. So I'm, I want to be sure parents know about that. Um, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, there's another test in Mississippi um, that, that we can talk about in a little bit called the in loco parentis test. And this in loco parentis just means that somebody has acted in the place of a parent. There's a very special sort of separate group of third parties, um, and those are, this always is a mouthful to say, men who believe themselves to be the fathers of their wives or girlfriends' children who turn out not to be. So <laughs> the, the short term for that is the defrauded dad. So if you think about that, a, a man who has acted as a father to a child and turns out he's not the biological father, he's a third party. And so the question has been, if, if he's been the only father that child knows for 10 years, do we say that he has to prove abandonment, desertion, or unfitness, or do we treat him on an equal with the mother because he has acted as a parent? So interesting. That's what we had uh, Stacey Lantane talking about 23andMe and you know DNA testing and right. things that, you know and, and what that all means, and you know that has probably changed family law to some extent. Oh too. my goodness, it has. So it's only been about 25 years that we've had cheap, reliable. Um, DNA test, and and it has exposed so many people who are actually not the fathers of their children, and all states are grappling with this. So right now, there's the Mississippi law. I won't take you through uh, a 15-minute history of it, but over the last 15 years, Mississippi law has meandered on this issue. Where we are right now is, uh, let's say a man's getting divorced and he has two children. And at divorce, his wife tells him that the eight-year-old child is not his child. It's the product of an affair. If the biological father shows up and is wanting custody of that child, then our law says that we treat the, the defrauded dad as a third party. He can't get custody unless he can prove abandonment, unfitness, or desertion. But if the biological father does not show up, and it's a custody fight between the biological mother and the defrauded dad, he's treated as an equal with her. So it, it's, you can see the court just struggling to try to address the rights of, of all of these people. And that's, that's an area that I think we'll continue to see change. It's so interesting. And I understand, Liz, we, we have a call, which is great. Let's go to Aaron, who is calling from Tupelo. Thank you, Aaron, for calling in, to, um, in legal terms. Go ahead. Yes, um, I have a question. Uh, I know you can't talk about the uh, actual legal terms of a uh, case, but I was trying to get custody of my son. Um, this is this been maybe two years ago, and um, what had happened was his mother signed over her. Well, she didn't. I thought her mother. I thought his mother had signed over his right, her right to her aunt. 
So he was living maybe an hour and a half away. So what I had to do, I had to get an investigator to first find her, and then I had to get an investigator to find him, and then, well, the same guy, and then I had to get him to give her the papers. And this was all I, this was all me. I didn't, the lawyer didn't help me do this at all. So once I got the papers issued to her, I, I hired a lawyer, and it was a real bad lawyer. It gave me like a bad, you know, thought about lawyers because I had to type up my own papers, and I had to do basically everything. And the lawyer was just basically calling me in every week to get money from me. So, and when we was going to every time we had a court date, I was she would always kick the court date back. So after a year of this happening, I kind of got upset. And I was like, you know, we need to be going to court. And um, so I decided, because she was fit to kick it back again, and I decided to uh, no longer have her to represent. So at that time, she actually sued me and said that um, I owed her this amount of money and stuff. And then she was putting like $5 phone calls that she said that I she had called me and then I had answered her phone and just like, I was like, anybody can make up stuff like that. But make it uh, a little shorter. I had to, not knowing, I had to trustees from the and the uncle. Not, not the mom, because I had the idea, I was given the idea that she had signed over her rights. So I was signing, I was suing them for custody because I was the rightful father. I, um, and I was suing them. Okay, after, um, well, I just got a letter at the beginning of the year saying that, um, that you know, that um, that case was going to be closed. And I was like, because I had, what, what happened was I took all my money from my 401k at my job to pay for my lawyer and pay for the uh, private investigator. So I had to pay all of that back after her suing me. So at the time, I couldn't afford another lawyer. So um, so what happened was they closed my case, and I was wondering, can I open that case up? And another thing is that, that when they sent me saying they was closing my case, they was closing the case between me and her. And I never did have seen her name on the case when, we was, when I was doing for custody. So let, let me make a, a suggestion, and this is not giving legal advice on, on your situation, but um, if, if she has given legal custody to someone else in a legal proceeding, that document should be on file in the, the county of residence. So I would suggest that you go to that court and ask for the court file under her name to see what you can find out. Now, if you, if in fact the the folks who have physical custody who, with with whom uh, your child is living, if they don't really have legal custody, then you would have to proceed against her as well. Um, so. I, I think what's really important here, and, I, and I'm so sorry this has been such a, a difficult road for you, um, 
but I, I think it's critical that you find out who's got legal custody and you know whether you can reopen the case would depend on what the judgment said but generally um, if a, a case is dismissed because it hasn't been brought forward um, often those are just dismissed without prejudice which means that you can bring it again but I would advise you um, the the one thing I can tell you is go get that court file um, there are also I don't know if um, if you would qualify for these but I can tell you that there are some really good legal clinics in the Tupelo area where local lawyers come to the courthouse and assist people with drafting their own pleadings. So you might check with the Chancery Court Office in Tupelo, the Chancery Clerk's Office, and see when their next clinics are and see if you qualify for assistance there because that might be a way for you to, to get a leg up to get back into court because I, I'm, I, I'm guessing if you can get into court with the right paperwork, you can probably explain to the judge what you're trying to do. And Liz, I know we have to take a break, but uh, as Dean Bell mentioned, I mean, there are services out there, including North Mississippi Rural Legal Services that we've had on our show before and other legal services corporations and around the state, Mississippi Volunteer Lawyers Project. People can get help, uh, and so we just want to make sure they know about that. And we'll have links to all of that information on the webpage for this show, also the podcast. We're talking with Professor Deborah Bell about children's issues. How can you learn more about adopting a child, becoming a foster parent, or preventing child abuse or neglect? We'll tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill, and we hope you'll subscribe to our podcast. There's lots of different podcasting platforms. I'm on Podcast Addict, but I think I'm going to move to Stitcher. (laughs) You download the podcast to your smart device, your phone or your tablet. Maybe touch the plus, and that'll take you to look for a place to search for podcasts. Then type in the name in legal terms in the search area it'll bring up our show and you just touch on that photo you can be uh, notified when new episodes are up or just listen to the ones that are already there the mississippi department of child protection services and their website is mdcp.ms.gov has a website where you can learn about adopting a child becoming a foster parent or learn about preventing child abuse or neglect this morning we're talking about family law issues concerning children with our guest professor deborah bell and we have a call we're going to go to oxford and allison is on the phone thanks for calling in allison go ahead to give you just a little bit of the history of the case, I think, in order for you to answer it. So 
I lived in New York, in New York City, for about 30 years, and my son was born there. My son's father and I were not married. In 2007, I lost my job of 18 years. It was a 150-year-old business, uh, and they, you know, the business closed suddenly in the economic downturn. I had two weeks' notice. That at that point, my son was four years old. A few months after that, his father uh, moved out and immediately started a custody battle in New York Family Court. And uh, there was a child support order. Uh, a pretty minimal one, and then that it was eventually raised, which he never paid until the day before a custody hearing, and then he would make a payment. And then at one point, he did make the payments regularly. This was when the trial finally started. Uh, ultimately, I was requesting custody and relocation to live with my parents here in Mississippi because it was the best option under the circumstances. And as you know, relocation cases are difficult. They are. I had, yeah, I had a private attorney who was representing me pro bono. Uh, the father had uh, at first a court-appointed attorney, which I didn't qualify for because I had shown income for the first half of that year until the business closed. Uh, he was never working regularly at all. I never produced financial records of any type. And eventually he represented himself because he enjoys that. But uh, ultimately, the whole thing took uh, close to five years. The case began in December 2007. It ended in April 2012. I was awarded full, full legal custody and denied permission to relocate. The father at that time was not paying support. I had one judgment against him for a certain amount of support arrears. Uh, so I was stuck in New York, you know, with no regular income and a young child. Uh, I, I found a, I, I went to New York Legal Assistance Group, and if I ever get rich, I'm going to help them out as best I can. Because <laughs> I'm they sure can. they'd appreciate that. Uh, they're a great organization, let me tell you. They, the attorney who had helped me in the custody case just couldn't do it anymore. He had done it for five years, and he was like, I'm sorry, I can't do it anymore, but you have a great case for appeal, go appeal it. So that's ultimately what happened. Um, uh, New York Legal Assistance Group found me uh, a wonderful attorney, and they uh, appealed the case for me, and I won. It was a unanimous panel. Oh, that's so, great. Uh, yeah, so I was allowed to relocate, and it, it ended up being a precedent-setting case, you know, so I was happy about it. So I was allowed to relocate in uh, October 2013. Uh, the father kept on, you know, trying to fight it in various appeals courts. Ultimately, in April, I think it was, no, I think it was July 2015, I finally, uh, a, a jurisdiction was transferred to Mississippi. And then the judge here ruled that visitation was suspended until the father would provide proof of where he lived because he had refused to do that all along and the court in New York nevertheless ordered visitation. I would put my son on a right. plane and have to send him 1,100 miles away and then they would disappear. I wouldn't be able to reach him. They were never where they were supposed to be. He was never complying with the terms of visitation. It was a nightmare. So the judge here said visitation is suspended until you tell where you live and he refused to do it. So he hasn't had any legal visitation since 2015. He has, however, made two surprise visits here. Meaning while he's not paying support, uh, it's close to $100,000 in arrears at this point. I did my best to pursue it here in Mississippi, and they ultimately told me, as long as he lives in New York, the case stays in New York. Well, nobody really knows where he lives because he won't produce an address. But mm -hmm. the New York court told me recently that they suspended the support case because they, because they don't know where he lives. 
so it seems like this catch-22. Um, and I know the issue is always personal service and how do you serve someone who doesn't work and won't tell anyone where they live. Uh, but I'm wondering, is there some other recourse in this case? I'm looking at a kid who's now not four, now he's heading for college in a couple of years. And, you know, so I'm, I would I'm- like... It, it sounds like you have had such a difficult saga, and I am so sorry I, to, to think about all the time that you've had to spend litigating, and, and I can't imagine the emotional um, difficulty of going through that year after year. So, um, again, remembering that I, I can't comment specifically, but I, I can give you some information. So this is going to sound like one of those uh, trying to find you a silver lining. Uh, but But one thing, at least, is that in Mississippi – um, support is due until a child is 21. And because 21 is the age of majority um, under Mississippi, the, the statute of limitations doesn't run on child support in Mississippi until a child is, is 21. After that, the statute of limitations is seven years. So at some point, it may be that um, the, the father of your child is employable and can be found and and you may be able to then go back and sue for all of these arrearages the issue as as i I know you well know by now is that unlike custody um, a court can issue a custody order without having what's called personal jurisdiction over the the defendant but child support requires personal jurisdiction which is what you're hearing from uh, I think the New York courts is that they're they're not able to get that because they can't find him so I, I wish I, I wish I could say more that's helpful um, but I, I think one thing is that at least you're not losing your ability right now to be able to collect those arrearages when he's found and and when he can be personally served and again, I'm so sorry to hear that you've gone through that, but but good for uh, your legal services lawyers in New York for being willing to take on that relocation case. Yep, uh, they're certainly great. And shout out to O'Melveny and Myers, the firm that took the case. They yeah, were super. I, and I, so. I know that was satisfying to them as well to to see that victory for you. Yeah, I hope so. Um, is there any uh, is there any other alternative way of service in a case like that? I mean, he's had the same PO box in New York for thirty years, probably. Can there never be an exception made to serve by mail, especially when the case is familiar with the court? You know, I, I couldn't. I'm not familiar with New York's rules on that. My guess is they've tried every possible type of service, but you could certainly ask them. And I, uh, well, and I wish they, you good luck with it. You know, it has to be personal service. Yeah. So. And, <laughs> but it just. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, well, I appreciate your of advice. Of course. And, and good luck to you. Yeah. And Allison, yeah, you, you've done a great job with them uh, for what it's worth. Um, you know, I know I know who this is and I know about uh, your child and uh, a really, really wonderful child. So uh, con- that that is very important and, and not to be forgotten. We're speaking with Professor Deborah Bell about issues concerning children, such as custody and adoption. Want to learn to be a better parent? I'll suggest one way next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Hey, this is Malcolm White with the Mississippi Arts Commission. I'm one of the hosts of the Mississippi Arts Hour. 
Arts Interview Show on Think Radio. Every week, myself or one of my fellow hosts bring you in-depth interviews with different creative Mississippians. We talk with visual artists, musicians, writers, as well as people who help bring the arts to their communities. We hear about how each artist learned their craft and get some insight into their creative process. You can hear the Arts Hour every Sunday at 5 p.m. on Think Radio or listen anytime by subscribing to the show through your favorite podcast app. Thank you for being a part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show in legal terms dot mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And if you co-parent, consider using a website and app such as Our Family Wizard to keep up with schedules and expenses. We're talking with Professor Deborah Bell about family law, specifically as it pertains to children. We have a call. Let's go to Ronnie, who's called in from Jefferson County. Ronnie, thanks for being part of our show today. Yeah, I'm kind of saying, but it's talking on the video too. But I kind of say, if, if your parents, like I'm a parent, and I got some kids, they're 40 years old. I'm on social security disability. I think the, the mom, she on disability. And the kid is 40 years old, uh, oh, 30, 38, and 43 of them, and um, I'm still paying child support when they're 40 years old. Paying child support for 40-year-old kids. Professor Bell, what's the law on that? Um, again, you know, I, I, I can't say for certain what, what that uh, would be. My um, Obviously, child support terminates at 21 in Mississippi at 18 in most states. If someone has built arrearages, though, uh, over a long period of time, they may still be ordered to pay arrearages. And um, so the only cases I'm aware of when somebody has been is paying and the children are past majority is, is that they are paying for arrearages for support that was actually due before the children were 21. Um, I would certainly recommend, though, that um, our caller go and talk to uh, the Department of Human Services Child Support and and ask them to clarify exactly what those payments are for and to do an accounting to to let them know exactly what they owe and, and what the current payments are for. All right, Ronnie, I hope that helps you. I think it's always a good idea to know if you're required to pay for something, to know how long you're required and, and what it is exactly you're, you're paying. You know, Debbie, uh, uh, the last call, well, the previous call or before that, Allison was talking about um, not being married, cohabitation. That seems to be more prevalent. And so how are rights determined in those situations? That's a big social change. Uh, that's That's a great question. So... In the 1980s, there were a couple of cases in which um, a couple divorced and the mother got custody of the children. And after the divorce, she began dating and then began living with um, her the man that she was dating. And in those cases, the mother lost custody because she was cohabiting. And so to, I, I should have prefaced with this. <coughs> Once a parent is awarded custody, stability is really important. So the non-custodial parent can only get the court to change custody if there is a serious change 
that really negatively affects the child. And 30 years ago, cohabitation just in and of itself was considered to be so inappropriate that the fact that she cohabited was enough for the father to get custody away from her. Now, um, there's been such a social change with regard to how we view cohabitation and with the prevalence of cohabitation that that rule has completely changed. Cohabitation is no longer a reason in and of itself to change custody. Our, Our court has said the fact that a parent is cohabiting is not reason to change custody unless you can prove that it is actually having a negative effect on the child. Now, that said, um, I think a lot of lawyers advise their clients who have custody to be careful about it because the other parent may want to try to use it. But it is not the reason to modify custody um, that it used to be. Well, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. So, I mean, I, I, how, so how does, what does a court look at then? You know, you talk about uh, uh, change in circumstance. When they talk about the original custody, they always look at best interest of the right. child. What is, so there's a big difference, and, and I think sometimes parents don't understand this. They, if you go through the initial custody action to decide who's going to have custody, both parents are treated equally, and the court goes through and says, who's the best parent? Who has the best home environment? Who has the job most conducive to providing child care? And makes a decision between the parents. But once you've, the court has awarded custody to one parent, then it's very difficult to modify custody because the, the court's not going to relitigate who's the best parent every two or three years. Um, another, I, I wanted to mention this, another change we've seen, though, in modification actions is um, there's so much emphasis now on the importance of parents cooperating. 25 years ago, if, one par- if the custodial parent tried to keep the child away from the non-custodial parent, if they interfered with visitation, if they tried to turn the child against the non-custodial parent, the non-custodial parent might try to come in and get custody, and the court would say that's not a reason to change custody. That's something we deal with by contempt. So we should just hold the parent in contempt, which often didn't work at all. That has changed so much now that we regularly see custody modified from one parent to the other if the parent who has custody is trying to interfere with the child's relationship with that non-custodial parent. Well, how would that happen? What, what kind of things would they do? Um, they might not show up for the visitation exchange. They might have an excuse, like the, just somehow every time it's the non-custodial parent's time, the child has a cold, the child has a plan, it's not convenient. Um, they, they might um, insist on exchanges at a different place. Uh, they might make the child unavailable at phone time. They might tell the child things about the non-custodial parent that are untrue. Um, so I mean, you just sometimes see this pattern of attempting to alienate the child from the, the other parent. And it's pretty clear when somebody's really, everybody gets into disputes post-divorce, but it's pretty clear when you see a real pattern of conduct where a parent's trying to do that. And courts take it very seriously now. I mean, that's good to hear because I know in in Florida for a long time, if you have a a divorce, they will not grant a divorce that involves children unless both parents go through a program to talk about, you know, what, how you should treat the child. Oh, parenting. Yeah. Yeah, parenting. I think a number of states are moving to a requirement that divorcing parents or parents who are litigating over custody go through a parenting program that's several weeks um, and, and one of the things those programs do really emphasize is the importance 
of not putting the children in between you in an argument. Another thing that a lot of states now require, uh, Mississippi does not at this point, uh, they require parents who are litigating custody to first go through mediation to see if they can resolve the custody issue on their own. I, I highly recommend that. Professor Bell, one quick question uh, at okay. the end. If uh, parents have 50-50 support uh, or 50-50 custody, how do they determine child support? That is a great question. And I was going to mention after the calls we've had today, maybe our next segment needs to be on child support <laughs> because these issues are so intertwined. Um, so it varies. If the Let's take the example if, a, if parents had equal incomes and split the children 50-50, there should be no child support ordered. But very often, the one of the parents has a much higher income. In that case, courts have done it a number of different ways. I think the, the really appropriate way to do it is to order each one to pay child support to the other based on the child support guidelines and then offset the difference. So for example, if the, if the husband's income was higher and the guidelines would produce $2,000 a month support for him, and the guidelines would produce $500 a month support from the mother, the father should pay $1,500. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. I, I think that that's really the best way to do it. But courts sometimes vary on how they treat that. And Liz, I understand we have a call. Well, no, that that was that was their oh, call. No, That's why I when I was kind of clicking around and I found this uh, our family wizard. I guess if you if you don't argue, it it seemed like a good website where you an app where you could put in how much you spend on the kid, and it would you could record um, uh, expenses that way, and also communicate with text messages so that you know there's no I tried to call you at work. No, you tried my cell phone. That, that's I have just seen some that, way. I have seen that recommended and and heard good things about it as a way for parents to communicate. And the the, the other thing I think that's been helpful to parents, but sometimes is um, it's too easy, is emails and text. Um, it's a great way to communicate, but sometimes people shoot off a text or an email in irritation that that they later regret. And so I, I think apps like that help people think through what they're sending to the other one. Professor Deborah Bell, we're so grateful that you took your time out to be with us today. Thank you. Of course. I love doing this. My pleasure. That's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. Our call screener today has been Michelle McAdoo, and our board engineer in Jackson is our great Java Chapman. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We hope you'll join us every Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.